The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning to this side more than this side, I guess. <laughs> it's great to see you. If I fall asleep, I apologize. Uh, got up early this morning even with the time change, and drove over from Louisville. Uh, in Georgia, we say Louisville, but up there they say it differently. Uh, so. Dr. Muller says Louisville, too, so I'll, I think I'm in good, good company. My name is Ray. As uh, Adam said, thank you guys for having me. I live in Dawsonville, Georgia. It's the northernmost metro county, Dawson County of Atlanta. And let me grab my glasses. Uh, I've been married to Lori for 31 years. We have six daughters, and uh, from age seven and two weeks to age 29. So we've got, we still have young ones at home. Abigail, our little one, was born uh, when I was 50, and a, a big surprise to us. So we we're thankful. She's a blessing and keeps us young, and so we're. I tell folks we're fighting the empty nest syndrome. We'll, uh, we don't expect to ever have to deal with that problem that some folks have to deal with. <laughs> I have four grandchildren, and they live down the street, so that's great. Get to see them as well. And uh, I don't think I turned it on. Did I? Can you all hear me? Okay. There we go. Is that better? There we go. All right. Four grandchildren uh, that live down the street. Actually, two boys in that group, so two boys and two girls. Uh, and so it's, it's just good to be here in Knoxville on a football weekend. Uh, last year I was coming through about this same time, and so I was listening to your sports radio. I forget what day, Saturday or probably a Monday I was coming through, and they were having this big press conference, and they just fired your coach. And, uh, yeah, I was listening to all of that. It's, it was very interesting. Uh, and of course, they were saying there's a good chance John Grudem's going to be your new coach. I don't, you may remember <laughs> sports radio last year. <laughs> so sometimes our expectations uh, uh, are so high that that we are disappointed when we don't meet them. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, things are looking up for Tennessee football right here, as as for Georgia football also, which is where I where I am. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about a dear a lady that's dear to my heart. Um, someone said all of our heroes should be dead because they've already lived and we can sort of look at the whole of their life and um, you know you can really consider a person's life much better after it's done because all of us have none of us want to be identified with a particular bad season in our life do we? Um, I don't I mean I've, I, we all have ups and downs and we would rather someone be able to take a step back and look at the whole of the life rather than one particular part of the life. And so sure, certainly we should have heroes that are alive, people that we can learn from and follow. But we can learn, I think, even more from those who've gone before us. And one of the things that folks may often wonder about when we talk about a Christian hero is, aren't we elevating them uh, to a place where they wouldn't want to be elevated, and it might diminish our view of God. And certainly, that's a possibility. You can have such a hero that they get in the way between you and God. But the Bible talks to us about that. And let me just read one passage. This is uh, particularly about preachers. 
But Paul mentions in his letters as well, women and men alike that served God faithfully, that he honored and remembered, give honor to whom honor is due, the scripture says. But in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, just to remember your leaders, who, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And that's a common theme in the writings of Paul as well, is to remember and to consider and to imitate. Paul even said that about himself, imitate me as I follow Christ. So as we think of Susanna Spurgeon, our goal is to not elevate Charles or Susanna Spurgeon in an idolatrous sort of way, but to remember their faithfulness, consider the whole of their life, the outcome of their faith, and imitate them as they followed Christ. In other words, we're to see through them the greatness of Christ. That's what we can do with our heroes and our leaders. And all of us have those. Uh, I'm sure you could uh, probably name. Why don't someone do that? Who's, who's one of your heroes? Anybody got a hero from the past that you'd like to, you wouldn't mind sharing? Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, yeah. Great missionary to China. Good. Yeah. Anybody else? Bunyan. John Bunyan. It was who? Wycliffe. I'm sorry. John Wycliffe. Wycliffe. Well, oh yeah, yes. I'm sorry. I can't hear. I got this here. This here. Okay. Wycliffe. Yeah. Good. John Wycliffe. Athanasius. Athanasius. Yes. Tozer. Who? A.W. Tozer. Tozer. Yes. That was one of the first books that my wife and I read was a Tozer book, uh, the Pursuit of the Holy, or I forget the name of it now, but uh, yeah, good. Good. Anybody else? And you've, uh, so you, they're your heroes for various reasons. You've considered, their, you've, you've considered their life. You've read their writings. They blessed you and helped you in some way to see the greatness of, of God. And so I think Susanna Spurgeon can do that. And one of those common uh, questions I get or common statements I get about Susanna Spurgeon is I knew that Spurgeon was married to her, but I didn't know anything about her. How many of you know uh, much about Susanna Spurgeon. Anybody? Okay. You heard of Charles Spurgeon? Okay. <laughs> All right. Good. I don't even know Charles. <laughs> I remember hearing John MacArthur years ago in a question and answer session, and someone was asking about Francis Schaeffer, and he says, I don't understand Edith Schaeffer. I'm just about Francis Schaeffer. So. But we do know Spurgeon, and Spurgeon had a wife, and I, I argue that we would not have the Charles Spurgeon that we have today if he had not had the wife that he had. And that's a big statement. I'm not saying we wouldn't have him at all, but we wouldn't have him as we have him if he had not had the wife that he has. Let me tell you just a little bit about her and we'll draw some uh, principles for life and hopefully see something about, about Christ. Let me pray again. Lord, thank you for this time with Hope Church here in Knoxville. Uh, thank you, uh, Lord, for that you have left us uh, great and faithful witnesses throughout the scripture and throughout church history. People like us who are weak and frail and fallen and struggle and are battling uh, remaining sin and seeking to be faithful. Thank you, Lord, for such faithful service that, that we can look at, we can learn from, we can see how they apply the scripture and help us to do that during this Sunday school time. Help us to see how Susie Spurgeon applied the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be with uh, the folks today. 
And we commit all these things into your care. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, one of the uh, questions I get a lot, too, is why did I write about Susie Spurgeon, being, being a guy? Well, I've got six daughters, but I'm still trying to figure uh, ladies out, so that's me. I'm writing about Susie Spurgeon. Uh, but I was in Southern Seminary a, a few years ago. I still go up there all as often as I can to write. I graduated in 2016 with a D-man in Biblical Spirituality. Dr. Don Whitney was my... Uh, Supervisor, some of you guys probably know him, the spiritual disciplines guy, and uh, other things. He's a good, good guy. I've known him a long time. Uh, and while I was there working on my thesis, I had to choose a topic, and I've been interested in Spurgeon for a long time. And I started asking uh, the question: well, I wonder if anyone's ever written anything about Charles Spurgeon's marriage. And uh, then I was, you know, thinking if. if if not, or if there's not much out there, maybe I could write something connected to biblical spirituality. And so I went to the library and I began searching and I uh, talked to, I couldn't find anything. That no one had written a singular volume about Charles Spurgeon's marriage. I thought that was amazing because, you know, all the great women in history that's been written about, and you're one of, arguably, one of the most well-known Christians in all of history, maybe the most well-known, you know, if you ask Christians in America, the most well-known Christian that's dead in all of history, you might find that Spurgeon is the top answer you get. I mean, folks could name off other leaders, but Spurgeon is very well-known in America, even often by unbelievers who have heard of his devotional book, Morning and Evening. Uh, and they may have seen it in their grandmother's home or their mother's home or a bookstore. It's, he's a very well-known person in America, still one of the top-selling authors He's like Elvis, you know, Elvis is still selling a lot of records and Spurgeon is still selling a lot of books. Um, but, uh, he's, and you know, he said before he died, he said, I'll be remembered more in America than in England. And so I was in England, I've been in England twice in the past uh, four or five years, and I just asked people in the street in London, have you ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? And no one had heard of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I, I finally, on the first trip, I found one person, other than the church, you know, Christians that... But just the man on the street uh, and many professing Christians had never heard of Charles Spurgeon. But as, as late as 1934, they had the uh, century, uh, one century anniversary of his uh, birth and uh, hosted by the Queen and the Prime Minister. And it was packed at the Prince Albert Hall. So that's 1934. That, you know, that's not that long ago. Uh, he was well remembered even even then. So I go to the library, there's nothing, and I'm surprised by that. Of course, I've read about her little bits and pieces in uh, Spurgeon biographies, and there was one little biography of Susanna Spurgeon done in 1903 by Charles Ray, that is produced by Banner of Truth now, uh, combined with one of her devotional books, and it's still in print, but uh, nothing else. And I asked Dr. Nettles, uh, I think he's been here before, right, to speak, Tom Nettles, good man. Uh, also known in a long time, and he said he didn't know of anything uh, all, uh, as well. They had been written about their marriage. And so I started working on that, and at the end of the day, my thesis uh, was the role of Bible intake and prayer in the marriage of Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. So I got out, I'm planning to publish, I want to find a publisher and write about their marriage. And uh, along the way, long story short, uh, it seemed that there was more interest at that time on a biography of Susanna Spurgeon. And so when I presented that to Moody Publishers, it, the book just came out a few weeks ago, I presented that to Moody Publishers, it took them almost no time flat to say yes. Uh, they were excited about that and, 
And uh, because, again, it's all the interest in Charles Spurgeon, there's not really ever been a full biography of Susanna Spurgeon. And Moody was excited about that and decided they're going to do a hardback. It's going to have pictures in it. And it's a beautiful, as you say, it's a very beautiful book that Moody put together. And I'm thankful. It's been great working with them. Uh, but that's uh, no one knew much about her. So it turned it into that. And now I'm working on another work that we'll talk about some principles from their marriage that we can apply in our marriages today. So that's how I got there. The more I read about her, the more fascinated I became. Because I always thought about, well, this is Spurgeon's wife. She, you know, she led the book fine. She was sick. Okay, what's next about Spurgeon? You know, look, tell me the next Spurgeon story. But the more I began to fill back the layers of this woman, uh, the more excited and interested I got. Susie Spurgeon was born in 1832 in London, and she died in 1903 in London as well. Now, her whole life was characterized by the Victorian era. I think Victoria came to the throne in 1837, but uh, some people date that era uh, all the way back to 1830 or 1832. And Victoria died in 1901. So Susanna Spurgeon, and she came to the throne as a teenager, uh, Victoria did. So we've got uh, Susie Spurgeon growing up, and her whole world is the Victorian era. That's all she knows. She's a city girl in every way, refined, cultured, educated, uh, prim and proper, we might say, from the upper middle class world. When she's not in London, she's in Paris. So that gives you more of a picture of this, uh, this lady. Uh, I'm, I'm a country boy from Georgia, so if I, had met, if I met someone like Susanna Spurgeon today, then they might wonder what was wrong with me, with my accent and my uh, uncouth ways. In fact, uh, <laughs> I, was, I had an interview the other day, a lady in, in London was interviewing me on her radio show uh, about Susie Spurgeon, and I was thinking, what is this lady thinking about me, my accent? <laughs> I mean, I'm just listening to her accent. I said, I could listen to this all day. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful accent, and, and she's got this Georgia boy on. So she's that. That's who she is. Uh, and that culture was very familiar with the Bible. It was a Bible-reading culture, and morning and evening devotions were pretty common in Victorian era. Doesn't mean that uh, the folks in mass were all Christians, but they at least had a cultural Christianity. So she was familiar with scripture. She would have been familiar with probably Pilgrim's Progress at least and, and some, other, uh, some other works. So she grows up in Victorian England, uh, 19, 1832, and uh, lives to 1903. Charles Spurgeon, on the other hand, is born in 1834. So she is, is two and a half years older than Charles Spurgeon. He's 1834, and he dies in 1892. So he dies at 57 years old. My age, I'm 57 now. Uh, and he died at 57. She lived on uh, until 1903. So she lived 11 years after he died and was born two and a half years before he was born. Uh, her parents were R.B. Thompson and Susanna Thompson. Her mother's name was Susanna as well. It took forever to figure that out. No one had ever recorded her mother's name. This is how obscure she's been to history. You go to any biography of Spurgeon, when they introduce Susanna, they'll often say, uh, Susanna Thompson, daughter of R.B. Thompson of Falcon Square. R.B., that's the dad, Robert Bennett. But she has a mom, obviously. Why don't they mention her mom? <laughs> but in Victorian culture, it was really all about the guy. Uh, 
in many ways. Women had few rights and, uh, and few privileges, and if uh, they were in a, a bad situation, they really were under the thumb of their husbands. They, they had no property of their own. If they had property coming into the marriage, it all became the husband's at marriage. So you can, even in a situation where you got a widow, uh, maybe she's been married all of her life and she's, uh, she's inherited her husband's property, say she's uh, 65 years old and she remarries and the new husband, everything is transferred. She, she never has control of the property herself. So women have few rights in that culture and that, that Susie lived in. And yet she prospered. She did. She never really pointed that out. I mean, she never said, well, I'm a victim or you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have a lot of freedoms. I can't do much. It's just the opposite. But it may explain at least why people don't mention her mother or much about her in that culture. Probably most, one of the most famous women of the Victorian era, other than Victoria, was Florence Nightingale and her work with uh, nurses in the war whatnot, as Virgil was friends with her and her work as well. So 
little village of Water Beach. And when he got there, he had about 40 people. The church still exists. It doesn't exist in its original building. It burned to the ground while Spurgeon was alive, and he helped to rebuild it. And he uh, foundation, he laid the foundation stone to that building. You can go and see it today. You go to church there today. It's still there. Uh, he was there from age 17 to age 19. And at 19 years of age, he got a letter from London inviting him to come and preach at what was then called the New Park Street Chapel. Later, it would be called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So that's how you probably know Spurgeon most is the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Same, same congregation, different names. They were without a pastor. They once were the most uh, prestigious and influential, largest Baptist church in England. They were in steep decline, uh, struggling financially in all sorts of ways. They were without a pastor. They had heard about Spurgeon. He, initially, when he got the letter, he said, this must be for the wrong Spurgeon. They wouldn't invite me to come to London to preach. I'm a country boy. <laughs> Even though he's brilliant, he's well-read, and, and he's a brilliant guy. But it was for him. He comes to preach on Sunday morning and Sunday night, December the 18th, 1853. And uh, there's only a handful of people there on Sunday morning, and he wishes he was back at home. He, did, he doesn't like London at all. He, he wants to go back. But by that evening, uh, they had gathered a larger crowd to come and hear him. And uh, in that group on Sunday evening was Susanna Thompson. Well, she saw them, and she was stunned that her church, she was not a member, but she was an attendee of the church with her parents, she was stunned that her church in England, in London, would invite this countryfied preacher to speak in the pulpit. So her first impression of him was not positive. Uh, now, guys, you can go ask your wives, you know, what her first impression of you was. <laughs> Maybe it was more positive. But uh, she, she talks about that. She writes about that. She, you know, she didn't like his hair, uh, his tie. His dress, his suit. He he had a hat. He was waving his handkerchief around a lot while he was preaching. She talks about that. She didn't like the the way he spoke. Everything about him, she was uh, she she could not understand. While more people wanted to hear him and they wanted him to come back uh, after she had heard him herself and saw him herself. So there's no record that they met that night. But uh, that would be a bit later. So I want you to keep that date in your mind because you're going to see some very uh, dramatic things happen very quickly. So December the 18th, 1853. Well, a lot of the folks at the church are very excited about this young 19-year-old preacher. And so they want him to come back again and again. So he's beginning in January, he comes sort of on a trial basis. He's pastor up in Water Beach still. He's coming back and forth to London a lot preaching. And he is a... Uh, connected to Thomas Olney, who is a prominent London citizen and a prominent member of the church. He and his family, and Susanna is as well. She's kin to the family. So this is giving you, you know, maybe you can see ahead a little bit. She's already in that home a lot. They're the reason she came on that Sunday night. And he's like the key person in the church that's, that's dealing with Charles as well. And so they're often in that home together. And Susie is kin to them by marriage. William Olney, Thomas's son, is married to her cousin, Susanna, of course. So her mother, Susanna, her cousin, Susanna, she's Susanna. All God's children are Susanna in Victorian era. Uh, so she's there. So that makes the connection. About a year prior to that, she is attending a service on a Sunday night in central London at a place called Coultry Chapel. 
named such because it was on Poultry Street because that's where the poultry, uh, you know, they, the streets would be named after various trades and they maintained that name. And she went to a service and she believes that she was converted that night in 1852, so backing up just a little bit. However, for whatever reason, she doesn't tell anybody. And uh, she keeps it to herself. She believes that God, God opened her heart, that her soul was enlightened, and that she trusted Christ in her, not, in her life, but she kept it secret. Now, that's, there's a lot of reasons that may have been. Uh, you know, again, maybe she was just shy. Maybe she, in Victorian era, she was hesitant to tell anyone, whatever. She didn't tell anyone, and almost immediately she began to struggle spiritually. She had this new life, she believed, but she, it didn't seem uh, like she was very uh, excited about it or very joyful. In fact, she began doubting and struggling spiritually, questioning uh, the things of God. And so she kept all of that to herself for a year. And William Olney tells Charles Spurgeon, who's there at the church, that she's struggling. And so Charles wants to help a parishioner. He's not officially the pastor. He's about to be in about a week. In April of 1854, so December 1853, we move ahead to April of 1854, Charles Spurgeon is, uh, sends Susanna Thompson a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he believed that, of course, she had a Bible, or he would have given her a Bible too, but she had a Bible. Uh, he believed that Pilgrim's Progress was just what she needed to help her understand her struggles in the Christian life. She needed discipleship. She needed some encouragement. And he inscribed it for your blessed, for your progress in the faith, your blessed progress in the faith. So all, and when Susanna looked back on that, she said, I believe that all he, all of his interest was simply as a pastor to a church of tender, trying to shepherd and help her. So that's April of 1854. She begins opening up at that point to him. He begins, uh, she seeks out counsel from, from the, he becomes the pastor like the next week or two. Officially, and she began seeking out counsel from him. Uh, she's still not a member of the church, though. Uh, so move ahead to June. So we get December of 1853. A few months later, April of 1854, Pilgrim's Progress. June of 1853, we have um, the grand reopening of the Crystal Palace in South London. And a group from the New Park Street Chapel attends this thing. Charles goes, and Susie is in the group. And it just happens, just so happens, they're seated together. And uh, providence of God. And Charles, as was often the case, had a book with him. He read six substantive books a week. Uh, and so he always carried a book. And so he had a book with him. And at some point before the grand procession started, he leaned over, whispered in her ear, opening this book, to a, a poem about marriage that says you should, you know, if you're going to get married, your spouse is likely already on the earth, you should pray for them. I mean, that's the essence of this poem. He whispers to her, do you pray for the one who's to be your husband? Now, we may not get that. I don't know. Uh, ladies, if you would get that, if someone whispered that in your ear, some gentleman, then she had no idea before that. But when he said that, the light came on. She knew what he was saying. And it, it, she describes the whole scene. It's like her heart's racing, and she's excited, and 
all of that. And then he whispers in her ear, he says, would you take a walk with me? And so they, they leave the group, they walk around the Crystal Palace, they walk outside, they walk down by the lake, and there, is, there are these extinct creature uh, models there. We know them as dinosaurs. I think they had just been classified or soon would be classified. Dinosaurs would be classified as dinosaurs around that time. And she talks about love blossoming. And uh, so think about this now. December, just a few months earlier, yuck. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Why? Why is he here? April, he's helping her spiritually. June, he's revealing his feelings for her. And just a couple of months later, August, in her grandfather's garden, he, he tells her he loves her, and he asks her to marry him. And there's no indication that he ever told her that he loved her prior to him asking her to marry him. And I've often thought that that's probably the way it should be. And when a guy is ready to tell a girl that he loves her, he should also, in the next breath, be able to say, will you marry me? Uh, that's at least uh, the way it happened for Spurgeon. That means that it's not just something we throw around. I love you, it's not just something we throw out there in that way. Uh, Spurgeon sealed it with a commitment. And she describes herself as going upstairs to her grandfather's house and kneeling in prayer and thanking the Lord for the blessing of such a good man. And uh, she didn't know, she said, Dad, what that was going to mean, being married to Charles Spurgeon. Uh, she, didn't, uh, she could see that was, his popularity was growing, but she had no idea uh, what all that would entail. So they're, they're married, and, uh, and they're not they're married yet, they're engaged, and over the course of time, she uh, applies for membership in the church. And I don't know what your membership requirements are, but they were very uh, careful at the New Park Street Chapel before joining a church. You had to write out your testimony. Uh, it had to be presented to uh, elders. Two elders then would come to your house to see uh, you in your context, to see how you were living, to see if it looked like you were living out your profession of faith. Uh, you then would be uh, uh, sent over to the pastor who would meet with you and uh, sign off on the testimony or not. And then you would go before the church and they would... Uh, Hear your testimony. And then if all of that goes well, then you're baptized. And then a couple of days later, you're formally announced as a member of the church. So it wasn't just walk the aisle and you're in. They were very careful about trying to do the best they could to have a regenerate church membership. So it was very serious. And that was in 1855. But sometime in the months just prior to their wedding in 1856, we see something happen in Susanna's life that... Um, that gives us gives her a picture of what it was going to be like to be married to him and also gives us an understanding of ways in which she struggled. Our heroes are like us. They struggle. Uh, and we shouldn't make them something they're not. They're not idols to be worshipped. They're examples to be followed. And so Susie uh, is it's Charles goes over to Susie's parents' home and has a mill, and he and Susie get in a carriage. They go into a place it was called the Horns, H-O-R-N-S, it was a public meeting house. They had all sorts of events there, but he was preaching there in the afternoon. Uh, so they, they get there, and the crowd of people outside, 
He helps Susie out of the carriage, walks to the door, turns the corner, places packed, and he simply forgets her. Uh, <laughs> he was so focused on what he had to do, he just forgot her. And that wouldn't be the first time they would forget her. But he forgot her. He went up to preach, and she got up. She got mad, and she got upset. And she was crying, and she lived pretty close to there, so she ran home to her mother. And no mention of her dad, but her, she ran home to her mother and tells her mother how she had been mistreated. Uh, well, her mother pulls her aside and helps her to calm down. And, and helps her to see, gives her a vision of what being married to Charles Spurgeon is going to be like. Of course, he, he was completely innocent in his heart. He, had, he, he meant no uh, ill towards Susie. He was just focused on his work at hand. So after the service is over, he starts looking for her. And he can't find her. He's really upset. So he runs over to the mother's house. Where's Susie? Susie, Susie, you know, and, and then the mother, very wisely, she could have, if she had wanted to kind of keep Susie to herself, as sometimes a mother will do when their daughter's about to get married, uh, or thinking about getting married or engaged, they'll try to, you know, they really want to keep them for themselves. She could have driven a wedge between those two, but she didn't. Uh, she brought them together. She talked them through it. They had tea together and described that and how, how thankful they were for such a godly mother that pulled them together and helped them to see the larger vision of what was ahead for them. Now, so that wasn't the first time. Uh, after they were married, even, Charles uh, would be in the vestry of the uh, church about to, to go preach soon, and Susie might walk into his vestry, and he would stand up and lift out his hand and say, my name is, uh, I'm Pastor Charles Spurgeon. He would introduce himself to his wife. Yeah. <laughs> So that's, uh, that's how focused he was on what was to come. And now, but later they laughed about that. You know, you know when you're married, you do some guys will do some things. And later on they're funny, but they may not be funny at the moment. So uh, save your laughter till later when everybody can laugh together. <laughs> and they often look back on that and laugh. And there was times when he would leave. And there was one time in particular. And this is really what settled her and made her the right woman for him. This is not everybody's marriage. It's not the way it needs to necessarily work in detail in every situation. But uh, he was about to leave, and she was weeping because he was gone a lot. Early in their marriage, he's preaching you know, up to ten times a week in various places. Church is growing. Uh, the church has all these institutions that are connected to it. He is a very busy man, and he's gone a lot. And so she's weeping, and he talks to her, helps her to see that what she's doing in and encouraging him and supporting him in his ministry is as important as what he's doing. The he, he recognized the sacrifice that she was making and helped her to see it in the larger part of the ministry. So Susie made a commitment that she would never, by God's grace, she would never do anything to hinder her husband from fulfilling his public ministry but uh, would, would seek to encourage him. She did that willingly. She did that joyfully. It wasn't Charles saying, you got to line up. None of that. This was in her heart. This was her vision. She embraced her husband's vision for ministry early on. And that, if she had not, they would not have made it. Uh, that sustained them through 
That's one of the sustaining things throughout is that she embraced God's calling on his life. Well, I know we got to move quickly. I, uh, my wife always tells me I, uh, I get bogged down early and can't finish the story, but uh, and I do. I'm so excited about her life and ministry. So let me tell you about the first year of their marriage. Give you this picture what they what they faced. So they get married in January, January the eighth, eighteen fifty six. They go off on a honeymoon. They uh, they have about ten days for a honeymoon. They go to Paris. And Charles doesn't speak French. Susie serves as his tour guide. And he likes that a lot. And so she's describing the buildings. And you know, yeah, when I went to, I was in Paris a year ago as well, connected to this research for this book. And again, they must have thought, you know, this guy, what is he doing in my city? <laughs> I said, what? Say that, say that one more time. <laughs> so I'm trying to learn you know, how to use the language enough to survive over there this time I was there. So they go to Paris, uh, they come back home, they start their lives, and early on they're sacrificing money. Charles begins training a young man for ministry, and it's really it's the beginning of the, what would become the pastor's college. And so that men in those early days sacrificing their own money to make it happen. So Charles would ultimately have a lot of money that came through his hands, but in the early days of his ministry, uh, they were like many of us. You know, they were getting by. And they were investing their money in the work. Well, move ahead to uh, September, late September, they have twins. So just about nine months after their wedding day, they have twins. Uh, so honeymoon pregnancy and babies right away. And they're all excited about that. Twin boys, Charles came out first, so he's Charles and Junior. And Thomas, who's more well-known to us, came out second, so Charles and Thomas. A month later, a great tragedy happens. It almost undoes, that almost undoes Spurgeon's ministry and his life and maybe even his marriage. Uh, it was of such a nature. The church is growing so quickly. I think it held about 1,200 people. It could not hold the people. They were trying to figure out what to do. Uh, so they decided they're going to rent facilities as they expanded the present building. And the building that they rented was uh, the Surrey Gardens Music Hall could hold about 10,000 people. And so they decided they would preach at the church on Sunday mornings and preach at the music hall on Sunday evenings. Well, the very first night he's there, back in those days, when she's still recovering at home with the twins, uh, so she's not going. She's praying for him. And so he goes, and he sees it. I mean, there's this huge crowd outside. Estimated ten to 12,000 people outside. Can't get in. And the inside is packed. It could have held anywhere from eight to 10 or 11,000 people, but it was packed uh, to the hilt. So they, they, they get, he had a tough time getting in the building himself. So they get him in the building, get him up to the stage area, pulpit area, and he begins the service. Uh, a great distance away from him, someone, uh, some, a group of guys walk in and they, they yell, fire, fire. And there was no fire, they were just mischief makers. Spurgeon couldn't tell what was going on. He saw there was some sort of disruption in the back, so he tried to keep the service going to kind of keep people focused. 
But what was happening is the people started panicking back there. The panic spread throughout. There was no need to panic, but the people panicked anyway. And you've probably read about that maybe in some Spurgeon biographies, but I found out that it was much worse than anything I'd ever read about in any Spurgeon biography. About, uh, I think it was nine people that died uh, and 20-something more that were hospitalized. So we've kind of known those numbers, but when you see how they died, it's really heartbreaking. I mean, there were people jumping from the balcony, uh, jumping out of the windows. And there was uh, two sisters who were running out of the building together, and, and one, the sister in back got pushed over on the sister in front, landed on top of her, and was people were just running over their bodies. And she suffocated her sister as she's screaming for help. And no one, I mean, it's just, it's just chaos. Uh, there's a woman that's nine months pregnant. She dies, and they get her out of the building. They get her to somewhere quickly, and they try to do, the woman is dead, but they're trying to do an emergency C-section to see if they can, can keep the baby alive, and the baby doesn't make it either. So, uh, I mean, it's just that kind of stuff. When Spurgeon starts getting an idea of what's going on, he collapses. And the, one paper reported he died. Uh, and he said, well, he didn't die, but he was close <laughs> to death. So they whisked him away back home. The word had gotten to Susie just before that. She was praying, uh, seeking God's help. He gets there. She can't even talk to him. He is inconsolable. Uh, he's whisked away to a deacon's home a few miles away, kind of more out of the country. And she, a few days later, joins him with the twins. And uh, he is distraught. I've got a letter that he wrote to his mother uh, from there. And, and he's, got, he's got very beautiful handwriting normally. But he's just sort of all over the page. He asked his mother uh, not to ask him about the event uh, at this point. He didn't, he didn't want to talk about it. He just said he knew that God would see him through and that kind of thing. So he, uh, but while he's there, he and Susie are out walking in the garden one day and a passage of scripture comes to mind. He calls it forth and he's revived a bit. And they rejoice together. Now this is, a, this is really astonishing. And, you know, we could be debated whether he should have done this or not. But two weeks after the tragedy, he's back in the pulpit at his church building, preaching again. And he even says it to the church, he says, I don't know that I should be here. And he tells them the same thing, don't ask me about it, I'll say what I, I can say about it, but don't ask me about it. He preaches Christ, and two weeks after that, he's back in the music hall again. Only they switch it. Morning, you know, they do the morning service there and the evening service at the church. But he never got over it. Uh, some of his friends thought it was connected, at least in part, to his early death. And he uh, he was he was depressed at some level before coming to London. After that, he was he faced times of very deep, dark depression. Something that we might call post-traumatic stress disorder. Something would happen and he could paralyze or freeze up or just be terribly upset over it for the rest of his life, really. He was a very joyful man, very happy man, very humorous man, and yet he would be very dark and sad and just start weeping uncontrollably. What Susie would do 
uh, for him on a Sunday evening, for example, he'd come home and just spent from the days any pastor can tell you after Sunday uh, preaching and all the ministry that goes on, you just you're just empty. She would read to him. She'd sit at his feet, read an hour to him sometimes, read the poetry of George Herbert, or read Richard Baxter. So that was another thing. She she ministered to her husband through reading. Now, I've got to jump really fast, or we're not going to do anything with uh, this, because we're almost out of time now. We are out of time. Wow. Uh, we are out of time. So let me take a, a couple more minutes. Okay. A few more minutes. All right. I've got to move this story along. So Susie Spurgeon... Uh, helps her husband through that trial. She, she travels with him. Uh, the, the, the literature presents her as hiking the Alps. That's almost unbelievable when you see what's about to happen to her. So she, Charles is riding in the carriage talking to his publisher about books and theology and all that stuff. And she's out ahead, sometimes out of sight. And she's exploring you know, things along the way. But then in 1868, her traveling days are over. Uh, she has surgery in late 68 or 69 that changes her for the rest of her life uh, by the most famed gynecologists of the day. They never have more children. They never is the specifics of the surgery given, but we assume that either uh, it was something female-related, either a hysterectomy that went bad, or she had endometriosis, something like endometriosis, because she lived to be 71, but she suffered with great pain for the rest of her life. So that's Susie Spurgeon, 1868. She's homebound after being so active in his life and his ministry. And then in 1875, so like that's the whole story itself, 1875, uh, Charles writes the first volume of Lectures to My Students, uh, Ab gives her the approved copy and says, would you read over this? She does. She says, I wish we could give everyone in England a copy of it. Uh, he says, why don't you make it happen? She says, well, you know, it's good to say, but you, mean, you, know, you want me to do what I say. So she's challenged to do that. And so she saves up enough money to buy 100 copies. She gives those 100 copies away to poor pastors. Long story short, she developed a deep burden for pastors who were dirt poor. She believed that pastors, if they could be alleviated of some of their trials, such as uh, all the financial trials that many pastors faced, they couldn't feed their family as, as uh, robustly as they wanted to, couldn't dress their family. Many pastors had not bought a new book in years. And she said, that's not good, that's not right. Those churches could be helped if the pastors were ministered to and helped. And so she set out to minister to them and did so in numerous ways. And from 1875 to 1903, at her death, she oversaw Mrs. Spurgeon's book fund and gave away 200,000 books to poor pastors in England. Ministered to their wives, getting clothes, money, food, all sorts of help. And uh, it challenged churches to do everything they could to minister to their, their pastors. Because if the pastor is healthy, and he's, he doesn't have all these burdens on him that he can, he's freer to minister to his church. That's amazing. She's at home. She's homebound someday. She cannot lift her hand. She cannot lift her head. Uh, she is living by faith. In 1886, she writes her first book, standalone book. She had added it a book earlier, but 1886, 1885, uh, 10 years of my life in the service of the book fund. It describes her ministry with the book fund. It's uh, very biographical. It, it letters from pastors to her, just very sad and joyful letters that she gets. Uh, 1892, 
She's met Spurgeon from 1870s, mid-70s until his death. He, he's traveling a thousand miles away to the south of France to recover from uh, his own sicknesses. He has Bright's disease, uh, disease uh, which is some sort of kidney disease. He has gout. He's depression. He has to get to sunnier climate. He's able to go, but she can never go. And his greatest desire is for her to be with him, but she can't. So, uh, uh, and that's the whole story. He writes her every day while he's gone. Every day he writes her a letter. And when he's too sickly to write, he dictates a letter to her. So she gets a letter from her husband constantly. Uh, but in 1891, October of 1891, for the very first time, God gives her strength to go with him. Of course, she didn't know, he didn't know it would be her last trip, his last trip. And so she goes with him. He's showing her all the sites of Montan, France, which is on the French Riviera. And it's, it's a beautiful place. I got to go there as well. It's just stunningly beautiful on the Mediterranean. And it is while they're there, three months of perfect happiness, like the second honeymoon. He's like a schoolboy. Susie, wasn't it worth coming all this distance just to see this, just to see that, just to see the other? And she said, all that's beautiful, but my heart was just overflowing with joy seeing how happy he was having me with him. They're like school kids. Uh, really, they are. The love letters they write to one another make a Victorian blush. You know, It's just so sweet. He talks about, I've only been gone five minutes, but I'm daydreaming about you right now. That kind of stuff. This is Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, theologian, writer of 135 books, 63 volumes of sermons, managing 60 institutions and megachurches, and he writes these kind of letters to his wife. I long for you. I miss you. I love you. And he buys her stuff. And he just, he's sweet. And she's sweet. Uh, and they, they're like that all day. The romance is there throughout their marriage. They pray for one another. They read together. She helps him in his ministry. She's doing the book fund. She's committed to his work. He dies in 1892. She's at his side there in southern France. And he dies and she, and she stops and prays and thanks the Lord for his life and the joy of being his wife. And then uh, he's shipped back to London. She doesn't go to the funeral services in London. She stays in the south of France for another month, recovering herself, writing some stuff. And uh, they have a memorial service for him there. She goes back to London. What must I do now that he is gone? And she believes that God has impressed upon her heart to continue the book crime. And she does that. She goes right back to work. She sits at his desk often. She thinks of his items. She prays at his chair. She weeps as she sees things that were important to him. So she is a lonely and sad widow. I mean, she's a normal person. She's not a superwoman. She hurts. She, she sheds tears. She looks to Christ. Well, over the next years, she writes uh, four more books. She's a widow. She's afflicted. She's essentially homebound. And she authors... Uh, uh, four more books, five standalone books. She's edited another. She's editing the monthly magazine that Spurgeon founded. In 1898, I think it is, she starts uh, co-editing and contributing to the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon that comes out after his death, which we thank God for. And about 1896, she's, she has to leave home. They're, they're doing work in her home. She goes to a place called Bexhill on Sea, south of London. She says, is there a Baptist church? And she didn't say it. She didn't say is. She says, where is the Baptist church? They said, there is not one. And she says, what? There's not a Baptist church here? 
So she attends services with the Wesleyans. She goes back to London. She's burdened about this. She begins praying. She begins strategizing. Long story short, a pastor friend of hers and his wife is visiting with her. She's, she is impressed that he is to be the pastor of a church that doesn't exist. And uh, so she leads the way to plant a church uh, south of London. So she would be no one's profile. If you go to the North American Mission Board, International Mission Board, any kind of church planting agency, they would not say, give me an elderly, widow, homebound sufferer to plant a church. They wouldn't do it. But nevertheless, she did it. And uh, she led the way. And that church I got to go to, it still exists today as well. They got monuments there to her. Uh, foundation stones laid by her sons and by her there as well. And she planted a church. So this sickly woman, by, and I, I challenge you to read her devotional books, especially one called uh, a, uh, oh, it's, it's a meditation for sick and sorrowful souls, a cluster of camphor, C-A-M-P-H-I-R-E, I think it's pronounced camphor, in which she uh, really talks about her faith in Christ in the midst of suffering. So let me wrap this up. Susie Spurgeon died in 1903 uh, at her home. She continued serving as long as she could. She did so by faith in Christ. She was honest with her struggles. There's some days she could do nothing at all. And yet uh, she didn't quit. And this is what I would say to you as a word of challenge that as long as God gives us breath, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, I'm sickly now, I'm getting older, I can't do much anymore. It's easy for us just to move to the sidelines, but she argues through her life, and she is severely afflicted to do everything you can do while you can do it, with what you have, with the strength that you have. If you're homebound and bedridden and can do nothing, but lie on your back and look up to God and pray, you're talking to the high king of heaven and asking him to help that's something. And so she is a, she's a faithful, faithful woman who served God devotedly. Well, let me close with, with this. There's so much I want to share with you, but that's uh, maybe some more in the sermon. Uh, two miles from her home, and just down the hill from the site of the Crystal Palace is the West Norwood Cemetery. Soon after entering the Gothic-style inner cemetery gates, and to the right and left up the hill is a monument that houses the caskets of both Charles and Susie Spurgeon. Carved into the granite on the left side of the monument are some of the last words ever spoken by Susie before she died. Lyrics from the pen of the author of Amazing Grace, a perpetual reminder that for Christians there's no need to worry, but to hush thee then, wait and watch and work, rest in the Lord and wait patiently on Him. And it says... In loving memory of Susanna Spurgeon, born January the 15th, 1832, died October the 22nd, 1903. And this was her hymn that she died essentially really close to her death. She was singing uh, from her bed. His love in time past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine is food. Though painful at present, will cease before long, and then, oh, how pleasant, the conqueror's song. Susie Spurgeon. And as she neared death, she said from Job, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. 
So uh, that's, that's just a little brief summary of the book that's out there, Susie, The Life and Legacy of Susanna Spurgeon. There's 10,000 more stories like that in the book. And if you're interested at all, I hope you'll, you'll get a copy uh, before you leave. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. There's so much to learn. Help us to be faithful. Help us to do what we can. Help us to embrace a big vision for ministry. Help us not to quit, but to surf until we die, doing whatever it is that we can do. If it's even just uh, no physical activity at all, but crying out to you in prayer, help us to be faithful uh, in that regard. Thank you for this life well lived. Thank you for this church. And now, Lord, you pray. we pray that you would bless the worship service for your glory and our good. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.